0: Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Joni McFarlane and joining me today are our transfer market insiders and pundits extraordinaire Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, Manchester City eye talented Lille attacking midfielder Nicolas Pepe as star-wingers Leroy Sané and Raheem Sterling's immediate futures remain far from secure at the Etihad. Stunning reports have suggested PSG and Man City have serious questions to answer regarding their application of financial fair play. We take a deep dive into the potential ramifications as UEFA gets set to deal with the developing scandal. And it's a Manchester derby at the weekend and Pep Guardiola has been keen to stress not to expect tactical fouling. We explain why the Catalan coach should be proud of their strategy and why it's helped them to dominate the Premier League this year. Okay guys, we've got so much to talk about this week, but we always like to start on a transfer story and Duncan has some news. Duncan, what's happening at Manchester City?
1: Yeah, Manchester City is ever... Our, um keeping their options uh, wide open when it comes to further strengthening their attack, further strengthening their team, um, giving Pep Guardiola what he wants in the transfer market so they can go and and deliver what Abu Dhabi want, which is the Champions League. Um, They realise that they have potential problems with um, Raheem Sterling and Leroy Zani um zani has been somewhat disruptive in the dressing room this season he was left out of the team um early on in the season by guardiola because he wasn't happy with the way he was training uh there is a potential contract issue there and there's a suggestion that zani um, would be prepared to move elsewhere if he got um, a good offer or use a good offer from elsewhere to um, leverage his, his contract situation at Manchester City in exactly the same way that Raheem Sterling has been doing um, over the last few months. Um, So they're looking for players who can play in that key position, sort of the second line of attack, either as a winger or playing slightly more inside, um, who can score goals, who can create goals. And one of the top talents in Europe at present is Nicola Pepe at um, Lille, who are currently second in Ligue 1. Um was a very young team, um, actually brought together by uh, Luis Campos, who was the technical director at Monaco, who was responsible for bringing in um, that super squad they had that ironically knocked uh, Manchester City out of the Champions League in, in Guardiola's first season. Pepe scored uh, eight goals already this season, uh, playing mainly from the right wing, um, and set up seven uh, for Leo's attack. Uh, he's 23-23. French-born, Cote d'Ivoire international, uh, extremely fast, extremely skillful, relatively tall, um, so fits fits the profile of player that that, that suits um, Guardiola's system. Um, Leo have a model in which they. Sign younger, talented players, bring them through the League One system, and we are prepared to sell if they get good offers for them down the line. In fact, their expectation is they'll sell their better players. They rejected a 30 million euro offer from um, Lyon on um, the last day of the summer transfer window for Pepe. They have significant interest from other European clubs, um, and but they they feel there's a possibility that City. Um, could bid if they have to if those problems continue with um, Sani or or Sterling. The valuation I'm told from Leo's end is around 50 million euros at present. Although they think they could possibly get more if more than one of the the Champions League super clubs bid for the player.
2: I think it's interesting as well. Um, what you said, Duncan, about they're a club who look to develop young players and then sell them on at much higher value. Top of that uh, very um, interesting list of uh, alumni is, of course, Aidan Hazard, who played at Lille before moving to Chelsea um, in 2011, I think, or 2012, sorry, he moved. Um, so it, it is a selling club. Um, I think for Manchester City fans, there will be concern um, that in what appears to have been a halcyon sort of, uh, what, 17, 18 months when Manchester City obviously won the title for the first time under Guardiola... Uh, making the hundred point mark in in on the way, Sani was electric uh in his performances during that season um He got left out of the Germany squad for their disappointing World cup campaign and then came back uh and Guardiola himself pointed out that he had expected more from him um What seems to have happened in the interim is that his partners had a baby, and it may have been the case that that you know he was personally concerned or or distracted by that particular um, part of his life and because and, he has put in two or three very good performances in the last month or so. Um, I don't think City would want to lose him having paid what I think people at the time what, was an eyebrowsing um, you know, amount of, in terms of fee for a player of his age. Um, and of course, as we've seen um, recently in terms of players running contracts down and leaving on free, then you automatically, with a player of that, um, elite quality. Uh, if you allow him, or, or sorry, allow, but he does go for free, you end up not just paying the same amount in salary to a player to come in, but you end up paying maybe fifty, sixty million pounds down a transfer fee as well. So it makes no financial sense to lose a player of Sani's ability. However, if the player wants to go and his contract is running out, which it is in the case of Sani, it is in the case of Ryan Sterling, then City have to prepare themselves uh, to, to make replacements. I think it's. Um, also poignant that they are having problems um, in terms of agreeing a new deal with Rhyme Sterling. Um, I think we all saw a number of stories in the past seven days claiming that Sterling had a verbal agreement on a new contract with Manchester City. First, I would say, when Guardo was asked about that in a post-match interview, he very pointedly said, I have no knowledge or information about a verbal agreement or any agreement with Sterling's contract. It has not been communicated to me by the club. As far as I know, there is no agreement. Now, that's fairly factual, straightforward and contradictory to the stories which have been put out. And my information is that they came from the Manchester City end, directly or indirectly, I'm not sure. They certainly didn't come from Eddie Ward, who is Sterling's agent, and didn't come from Sterling either. And my information on that is that Sterling's contract negotiations, there have been no new talks in the last month because Manchester City believe that he's asking too much. He's asking to become the best-paid player at the club, the best-paid player in the Premier League. And they're worried that his age... And this is, again, an an important factor going forward. And obviously, we're going to start talking about FFP in a little bit. They were scared that if you pay this guy four hundred grand a week, say, now, at 23, and his renewal comes up in four years' time... What are you going to be paying them then? And this is going to be a problem for the elite clubs and younger players. I, I stress younger players because obviously stellar financial contracts have gone to Ronaldo and Messi at Juventus and Barcelona respectively recently. But those players are 31 and 33. It's the last big contract. So you can afford to pay that money because there's going to be value only in the playing side, not in the resale. But with players at 23, if you award them contracts that are worth 12 and a half. £14 million pounds per season, when they get to their peak in four years' time at 27-28, they're going to want double that. Now, that is unsustainable for any football club, never mind Manchester City. So, with Sani, it's a similar situation. Um, if he's demanding too much, then what's his renewal um, figure going to be in four years' time? Sterling the same. And there's a discussion currently happening, albeit informally, between the top clubs, the elite clubs in Europe, and certainly in the Premier League, whereby... There is. They're going to take a stance, and they're going to say, "We're not going to pay this amount of money to this uh, to a player that young because if we do so, and everyone else comes and asks for the same money, then the wage bill, which of course is the um, one of the basic calculus of FFP, it will be
0: unsustainable." Well, yeah, that's I, a, d- sorry, well, Duncan, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I just um, mentioned that like, we've been discussing. Sterling's uh, position for a few weeks on the transfer window, and it, it, it's very clear um, in terms of the way a player and his agent will address uh, when they're in the position they are. Raheem Sterling has been, if not the best player for Manchester City over uh, the last two seasons, he's been very close to it and he's been very important to their success. He's demonstrated everything he's, he could reasonably expect it of him to demonstrate on the pitch. Um, he's at a young age he's English, Um, he has everything in his favour in terms of valuation on the transfer market. Um, Therefore, with his contract running down, he and his agent are going to exploit that situation to get the maximum money possible. And they'll look to um, other clubs uh, to give them options and offers and use that as a, a bargaining tool against Manchester City, in awareness that Manchester City have never let any of their star players leave. Um, none of them have been sold of Manchester City's volition since Abu Dhabi took over the club. But in awareness that they're not sold and they get the contracts <laughs> that are required to keep them at the club. Uh, and also, Sterling's already substantially well paid, so should he make that calculation that what Manchester, Manchester City aren't prepared to offer me what I can get elsewhere? Should Manchester City decide to say, on this, in this particular interest, we draw the line, we're not going to pay this player, He knows he can leave on a free transfer in a year and a half's time and get um, a substantial sum of money as a signing-on fee, because the club, uh, who would have been expecting to pay probably in excess of £100 for a player of his quality, will be getting him transfer fee free, and that money should be redirected, at least partially, to his salary, as Alexis, Alexis Sanchez did. Um, upon leaving Arsenal. And, and the reason why Alexis Sanchez has such high wages, that, you know, joint highest wages at Manchester United at the moment, and wages that are being used by Raheem Sterling in his negotiation with Manchester City, is because he used that tactic when it was open to him. So we'll see this happen again and again and again in football, as long as broadcast revenues go up, as long as the total income of the clubs go up as long as we have a contract system which allows players to leave for nothing at the end of their contract, they will leverage to get the maximum cut of those broadcast um, and earnings from a club as possible.
0: Well, with wages rising at Manchester City, it looks like, guys, what position are they in to actually deal with handing out contracts like that, given their current financial fair play woes that have been all over the press in the last few days? Oh, I think, Johnny, it's it's fairly obvious that...
2: um... As we said, the stipulation, one of the major stipulations for franchise football play is the ratio of um, salaries paid to turnover. Now, if you increase a player's wages, if you double a player's wages, which in, in the case of um, uh, Sterling, what he is asking for, then it doesn't, you know, it's not, it didn't take a rocket scientist to um, see that that is going to have a major influence on the overall expenditure. In the club, when you put Sani into the picture as well, again looking for at least double, um, then <clears throat> you see that, the, that De Bruyne has recently had a contract upgrade, and there are probably I think three more players at Manchester City whose contracts will need to be upgraded in the next year to eighteen months. It's it simply cannot go on at the rate that it is. Um, if financial fair players is to stand up and actually be uh, a governing or policing um, tool for UEFA in order to try and keep competition fair as it possibly can be. The other issue, of course, is that um, clubs like Manchester United, Liverpool, uh, Juventus, who, who don't have either a nation state or a sugar daddy owner uh, with infinite funds, they're the ones who wanted FFP to be implemented and to be policed tightly. And, of course, what we have seen in the last um, 10 days is PSG taking UEFA to the Court for Arbitration of Sport in Lausanne to contest charges against them um, that they have been improprietous in terms of the way that they have um, done their business and also uh, with regards to their FFP obligations. And now there are questions about... um, financial dealings which have been deceptive and allegations of deception at Manchester City with regards to the investment of Abu Dhabi in their club in terms of um, the the money that's spent on transfers and wages and how that fits in with FFP. It's going to be... This is... um, It's like a bit of a hornet's nest because clearly um, nation-states such as Qatar, um, Abu Dhabi, and obviously um, we have the World Cup in 2022 as well in the Middle East, and also the sponsorship deals, which you see um, almost ugh, a wash across all sports, not just football, but, but the richest ones are football. A lot of them are coming through petrodollars generated in the Middle East. Sports got a lot to lose if um, the countries in the Middle East who have been so generous benefactors in the past five, ten years suddenly decide that they no longer want that kind of representational interest in high-profile events and sporting franchises institutions uh, being the modern words to call football clubs. Um, so th- there's a lot at stake here in terms of what penalties might be uh, um, in, in put in place or whether or not FFP survives these challenges as well. Uh, because there's, as I said, there's so much at stake across sport, not but mostly in football, with regards to the money that's being pumped in. I think as a football fan or as a, someone who is... Uh, has an interest in football in this country and anywhere else. I'd be very worried um, about the outcome because on one hand, you've got the old established clubs who claim that they're not state sponsored, uh, who in the in- first instance were the ones who were supporting FFP. And then you've got the what's called the new money uh, and petrodollars saying, well, why aren't we allowed free market capitalism? Uh, we should be allowed to um, flourish Uh, In the same way that these big clubs have done, uh, albeit through commercial deals and and effectively cashing in on the name and reputation of their own club. So there's a lot of friction, put it that way. And um, the cast uh, decision, um, we're not expecting it soon, but uh, that that decision on PSG will be, I think, set a precedent as to how things go forward.
1: I think um, it's a very serious situation for Manchester City. And one of the reasons it's so serious is just to go back to uh, the the raison d'etre Abu Dhabi bought into football. As we've talked about in this programme many times, it's not about a love of the sport. It's not about um, Sheikh Mansour being a great fan of football who wants to attend games uh, and see his newly purchased team succeed. He's been to one match in the 10 years he supposedly owns the club it's actually owned by his family it's funded by the state but they got into this for pr purposes it was a very clever way of selling abu dhabi to the world um every time manchester city play a football match abu dhabi and and the names of state-owned abu dhabi companies are plastered all over the tv almost every time an article is written about manchester city abu is mentioned um, they've spent uh well these, these um, revelations are, are, are kind of reassessing how much has been invested by Abu Dhabi and Manchester City. I mean, by the, by the club's own account, it's well over a billion pounds of investment directly from Abu Dhabi, from, from uh, Sheikh Mansour, as, as they put it, and that's excluding the sponsorship.
0: Um, the, the, that, the figure from foot, Football Leagues, Duncan, is £2.7 billion over the last seven years through its shareholders yeah. and overvalued sponsorship contracts.
1: Exactly. So, that, you know, let's take that that figure as a as a working model: two point seven billion. Even if they put two point seven billion in that to buy that kind of uh, sponsorship and advertising in a in a in a standard fashion on the market, so to buy space in newspapers or on TV, it would get a, a fraction of the coverage they get by owning Manchester City. So, as a business proposition, it was very clever way to do this, to buy a football club, turn it into one of the best football clubs in the world and get constant, um, relatively low cost exposure. It was also a political tool um, to increase uh, Abu Dhabi's importance on the world stage. Abu Dhabi is a, a country which is um, you know, in, in a very delicate uh, geopolitical situation, effectively at, in, a, in, in a soft war with Qatar, one of its neighbours at present. Um, the, because it's a anti-democratic um, monarchy, uh, the the state ro- uh, lives in fear of a, a popular Muslim uprising against uh, the royal family. So, they, a lot of their actions on the world stage are about securing um, the influence of Abu Dhabi uh, through investment in countries such as the UK and Manchester City is just one example of it. They invest a lot into um, companies. We, we talked last week about how um, Abu Dhabi are supposed to be partially behind the um, proposed $25 billion sponsorship of a new FIFA uh, Club World Cup. All of these things, you, you buy a part of Europe or America, and your importance to those countries increases through them. But if you're a PR project, part of it's a PR project, and suddenly um, it's being exposed that you blatantly lied. Um, about uh, when trying to adhere to um, financial fair play rules that every club in European football had to adhere to. And UEFA brought into place um, by their own statement to improve the overall financial health of European club football. If there's documentary evidence there saying that um, a sponsorship, for example, from ABAR, which isn't even one of the principal sponsorships for Manchester City, was was for 50 million pounds a year from 2010. But ABAR itself was only paying three million pounds of it, and the rest was coming from the owner direct, funneled through ABAR's accounts. Similar situation with Etihad Airways. Um, that really. Um, is it's terrible publicity for manchester city and i think it's it 's revealing that that manchester city 's only statement on this is essentially to refuse to comment on um, particular allegations specific allegations specific documents that have been presented to them and say that um, it's it 's an attempt to damage the club's reputation um and therefore they won't be providing any comment on what they call out-of-context materials purportedly hacked or stolen from um, City Football Group or Manchester City personnel. Um, one, that there's a possibility of retrospective action against them by UEFA. Um, and we have to remember that UEFA's leadership has changed since the, the time in which these um, sanctions and these uh, FFP penalties were initially imposed. And... Um, one of the allegations is that Gianni Infantino, the then General Secretary of UEFA, essentially went to Manchester City, told them about what was supposed to be an independent investigation by UEFA's FFB committee on their finances, and ultimately asked them how they would like to be punished, what was an acceptable punishment for them. Infantino, as we know, is now gone. He's the president of FIFA. Um, the Platini was the president of. UEFA at the time, he's been replaced, so the new um, heads of UEFA who are on a kind of war footing with FIFA at present anyway over the Club World Cup could choose to go retrospectively back into those sanctions and say, well, the information you provided us was false, uh, unless you can demonstrate that what you told us at the time was genuine, we are now going to reassess those sanctions. And at the time, those sanctions could have included be, being expelled from the Champions League for a season or more. Moreover, it could affect future FFP calculations. So that further allegations are, not only were Manchester City uh, faking their commercial revenue to make it look like they were close to the breakeven point that was required by FFP regulations, but they continue to do that. Um, so they can expect a more um, intense examination of their accounts for the next FFP assessment. And uh, as we noted on the podcast a few weeks ago, Manchester City's commercial revenue, as declared, is already unusually high. Um, It's very close to Manchester United. It's miles ahead of Liverpool. Uh, Manchester United is the second highest commercial revenue in world football behind Bayern Munich. But Manchester City are only um, a few tens of millions behind them. Which is very odd when you consider um the 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 global support of the two clubs the the difference in the history of the two clubs um and the the way in which we know that both Bayern Munich and Manchester United have been so effective at finding commercial revenue from genuine independent partners who are offering money because they think it's valuable to them as opposed to um, the bulk of the primary sponsors Manchester City which are all come from Abu Dhabi and are all either owned or partly owned by the same people as own the football club.
0: Yeah, and I suppose the question will be from people listening to this, what's the point of FFP? If, if they're not going to actually follow the rules, if they're going to have people within the organisations that are going to facilitate teams like City and Paris Saint-Germain sidestepping them, I mean, is this a good thing in the first place? One of the um, cyclical and eternal problems in football
2: Johnny has always been the fact that it's self-governing and so if you if you have a self-governing um authority then effectively you have always got a conflict of interest there will always be people involved who are supposed to be part of an independent inquiry or independent sanctions committee or um an independent Um, review of a particular issue or case or club who actually have either history or an interest in what they're doing as well as what they've been appointed to do. And in the case of FFP, that is the case as well. Um, As Duncan mentioned, there is uh, an allegation that Gianni Infantino, while he was General Secretary of UFO, effectively warned Manchester City that they were going to be punished for breaching FFP and asked what the acceptable punishment would be because they didn't want to either upset or ostracise them in any way because they realised that the financial power of Abu Dhabi and the, um, let's just say, the consumer draw of Manchester City and its superstars was important to UEFA and its European competitions. Now, it's... Again it's interesting to go back to the fact that PSG have gone to CAS in Lausanne because there's a rule in UEFA which states that no member club can take up a legal case in the court of law in any country against UEFA which is why PSG have had to go to the Court of Arbitration for Sport which funnily enough is also a self-governing body um in terms of uh it's although its influence extends, obviously, beyond football, but to all sport. So what you get is you never get a fair hearing. FFP was the brainchild of Michel Platini who wanted to try and establish what he believed to be a level playing field for all clubs regarding their participation in any competition, whether it be domestic or European. And in doing so, they calculated a a a formula which um, said... Everything is based on your club's turnover, which then relates to the wages you pay, the transfer fees you pay as well, and the sponsorship and commercial agreements you enter into. Um, Now, obviously, there are lots of um, bylaws and terms and conditions and caveats which, which go with those. But the overall principle was you had to make it work on its own. You couldn't just rely on one generous benefactor infinitely pumping money into the football club in order to generate success. Unfortunately, there is, of course, in football, um, this, if you like, uh, <clears throat> unusually um, uh, traditional hierarchy of clubs who tend to dominate both European football and domestic football based on their turnover and income already. So, a club like Man City, who were playing second division football not so long ago, coming up and being the young whippersnappers who have suddenly got great investment from nation sponsorship, etc., etc., are looked upon as someone something dangerous towards the, uh, the status quo, and therefore should be slapped down. Same with Paris Saint-Germain, and it would be the same <clears throat> in any other country where a nation-state um, invested so much money. Obviously, Chelsea had the same allegations but buying titles from Roman Brand which first came in in 2003. So if FFP, if it's to survive, and it's a big if, um, because I think within UEFA there may well be um, a feeling, or certainly a, a, an intimation, amongst some members of their executive committee that it is unworkable uh, in its current state. Um, then it will, it would have to change. It would have to change. It would either have to be more strict and come down heavily. And but let's face it, it's like when um, you know someone says, "Oh, uh, Alex Sanchez has been fined a week's wages because he didn't he's hunting for training late." And people say, well, what's, you know, 300 grand to Alexis, San- Alexis Sanchez? The same is, if Manchester City were fined £20 million for breaching FFP, people will say, well, well, you know, that's hardly a punishment, is it? Because they could, you know, lose that amount running for the team bus. So it has to be a ban from European competition. It has to be um, for an amount of time which effectively disgraces and humiliates the club for breaching what are rules and regulations uh, and ones that they flagrantly decided to breach? Um, however, I ask the question to you, to Duncan, to anyone else out there listening. Do FIFA have the courage, sorry, do UEFA have the courage to do that? I'm not sure they do.
1: Hmm. I think um, with effort, let, let's go to the basics of FFB and ask whether it succeeded or not. UEFA's... Um, stated intention with financial fair play was to improve the overall financial health of European club football. They've got very detailed documentation on their website showing how far fewer clubs are running big debts how far more clubs are operating at profitable level or a break-even level than uh, were doing so at the time when financial fair play was brought in. So by their own measure it's definitely succeeded um, in terms of improving the the health of of European club football. Now the Manchester City, Paris Saint-Germain argument is it was a system designed by a cartel to stop us from um, spending, investing money in football which we have and we want to invest in the game and to stop us from uh, pushing ourselves to the top of uh, the European game. Now let's measure against that well, Paris Saint-Germain have won the French title almost every season since um, the Qatar uh, bought into the club. Manchester City have won the English title three times. Last season, they won the title uh, with multiple records set, um, regarded as being by, by many people as the best uh, football team English league has ever produced. Um, They're currently on top of the division again. They're currently unbeaten after 11 games. If we look at spending in uh, European football, Manchester City, since 2010, spent 1.5 billion um, euros on transfer fees alone. Uh, The closest a cartel club, if you like, has got to that is Barcelona at 1.25 billion. If you look at squad cost, the two most expensive squads in European football and world football at present Manchester City, 976 million, Paris Saint Germain, 788 million. Now, both, neither Paris Saint Germain nor Manchester City have won the Champions League yet. But I don't think they haven't won. The, the reason they've won the Champions League is because they have been prevented from investing and buying a team and buying uh, coaches of the top quality who should be able to achieve that. They've got those. The reason, a key reason why they haven't won the Champions League is they keep messing up games against other opposition by making tactical mistakes or, or, or mistakes on the field of play. So if you take it from Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain's dep- depiction of the cartel trying to stop us from winning, it, it certainly hasn't worked because they are winning and they're going to continue to win. There's also this depiction that financial fair play stops um, outside investors from putting money into football. That's simply not true because what any, any club under the financial fair play regulations is allowed unlimited investment in stadia, unlimited investment in training facilities, unlimited investment in youth development. So, but that's a lot of, of fundamental components. Ask Tottenham Hotspur um, how they'd feel if they were allowed uh, to have their stadium rebuild, which is fundamental to their their future growth plans, essentially for free, not have not have to finance that by debt. All of those things have been granted to Paris Saint Germain and Manchester City and any other club for free. So, had those two clubs decided to grow the project slower, grow it more organically, they could have put in place the best academies in European football and there's an argument that Manchester City have done exactly that um, there's an argument that they've got the best crop of young footballers around the problem for them is that those young footballers can't get in the first team because their first team players are so good but that would have been an option for City and PSG. Do it more slowly within FFP rules. Sp- instead of spending your money on uh, established stars, spend the money on kids, and over a period of ten years, you'll have a team of established, uh, established uh, top stars. And then one final point is, you take this away, you take financial fair play away, and you just say you say what Manchester City and Paris Saint Germain and their supporters say should happen, which is if. Our owners have got lots of money and they want to put as much money as they like into football and invest into football. That's got to be good for the game. Let them do it. What happens then? Well, you can imagine Abu Dhabi. It wouldn't be 2.7 billion. um, As you've mentioned, Their Spiegel are saying the investment would be. It could be 2 billion pounds a year. Um, if, If there were no rules... What What is to stop Abu Dhabi or Qatar saying, right, we're going to blow this transfer market to pieces. We are going to offer, um, we're going to buy out the top players and the release clauses from, from Spain and countries that have them. Where they don't have release clauses, we'll wait till... Uh, they get near the end of the contract, we'll offer ridiculous transfer fees. And they've done that throughout their time as clubs, but they'd be able to do even more of it if there were no limitations on it. And we're going to multiply the salaries by three or four times. And they've done the same thing. They've been offering, you know, Lionel Messi multiples on his salary to try and get them, but haven't been able to to get them. So then think about the repercussions. If you have two nation states allowed to spend as much as they want um, on creating the best squad possible, not even having the limitations they have at the moment, which clearly haven't been that great because they both have the two most expensive squads in football, the competitive balance of the game would be utterly destroyed. So there is sense in saying, um, one, for the purposes of having a a more entertaining sport, that you limit the spending of certain clubs. And we're talking about an extreme situation. We're not talking about individuals buying football clubs, we're talking about nation states and very rich nation states buying football clubs. And, and two, you you say um, there's only a certain amount you can spend per year to try and, uh, and, and avoid the problem of uh, what happens if this nation state gets bored with football? What happens if for PR purposes, because something they've done has been exposed, or for geopolitical purposes it's not uh, valuable to them anymore? What happens if they walk away, leaving the club saddled with huge debts? Um, do we see Manchester City or Paris Saint-Germain go out of business completely because... Um, of some decision that's taken in, in the realms of the royal family in these countries that they no longer want to be involved in sports. So there is the implementation has certainly not been perfect. There's problems with any set of rules you bring into sport. But the basic principle, I think, is correct. There, there are reasons to have financial fair play. There are reasons to limit spending of clubs, because otherwise you, you would risk destroying the game we all watch and love.
0: So if this is essentially about how the big clubs operate, one of the big stories of the week has been the news that, again from the Football Leaks website, that a cabal of Europe's biggest clubs are looking to break away from the UEFA Champions League or certainly potentially going to threaten that with Manchester United, Man City, Chelsea, Arsenal and Liverpool named as the Premier League clubs involved and Real Madrid, Barcelona, Juventus, PSG and AC Milan named as conspirators as well. Ian, what do you make of this?
2: I think, uh, Johnny, it's it's one of those ones where um, if I'd, you know, let's just say not a, not a quid, but <clears throat> 100 grand for every time the European Super League story turned reared its ugly head, then, you know, I probably wouldn't be doing this podcast. Um, because <laughs> it, it does happen very, very often. And usually it happens when the top clubs, funnily enough, the cabal that we've been talking about uh, over the FFP Um, conversation uh, are not happy about something so they they wield their power um in a way which is political rather than practical it's no coincidence that this story was let's just say um it was put out there uh, in a very very big way in the wake of the summit uh, in africa the fifa summit where the um possibility of a new FIFA World Cup championship um, was um, was raised and was debated um, with regard to the possibility of it happening either annually or every four years, um, with exceptional amounts of uh, money inputted, funnily enough, yet again, by petrodollars in the Middle East. Um, and in response, obviously, European clubs have always been uh, very, very... Sensitive about their players being involved in uh, any external matches out with the European season or European Championships or World Cup, which they obviously accept are a necessary part of the football calendar. So the proposition that their players, whom they pay very well um, and whom they uh, want to value and protect from any kind of injury or burnout or fatigue, then. Yeah, I, I genuinely believe this is, is political posturing on behalf uh, of the big clubs. They do not want uh, a World Club Championship, and I, I believe, in any form. And if they do want a, club, a World Club Championship in, in, a, in a form, they want to be at the forefront of negotiating the terms of that in order that it suits them and that what prevails will not be necessarily counterproductive or negative for their chances uh, and their ambitions in their own domestic competitions and or uh, the European competitions uh, in the Europa League and Championship, which currently exist. So, yet yeah, again, we've got a, a sort of standoff between the big clubs in Europe, who are effectively putting a warning out to their own delegates on the FIFA Executive Council, So the, so UEFA in this case, to stay strong, stand strong. Do not allow, allow themselves to be um, trodden on, or bowled over, or charmed by Gianni Infantino and Petrodollars into setting up a contract for a World Club Championship. Uh, as effectively, what they're saying is, if you do, then we will take action and we will form our own league. Which means UEFA would be damaged, obviously, because the Champions League would become, you know, uh, you know, a, a secondary competition if it was deprived of. the the biggest names in European football um, and they're flexing the muscle the financial muscle as well they're saying without us your Champions League your Europa League is nothing Uh, so therefore if you try to go behind our back and negotiate something with FIFA um, which we don't like or we are not fully represented or we're not heard on then this is what we're going to do as I said it happens every couple of years and nothing's happened in terms of European Super League yet I don't think it's going to happen in this instance either um, the whole sort of you know nineteen years no relegation thing is nonsense. So I, I yeah, as I said, Johnny, I I I think this is something which will not come to any anything. I think it's just basically to get UF as Executive Council worried um about what the big clubs in their particular association feel about the World Cup championship and get them talking to the chief executives and administrators of the, the elite clubs in Europe to make sure that um, whatever happens, if anything does, regarding the World Cup Championship, that they um, they have their voice heard, and and I my suspicion is that nothing will happen with regards to the World Club Championship unless those clubs themselves are guaranteed, you know, a, a massive amount of money because let's face it, that um, FFP rules will allow them to have that because it's part of a compet- competition.
1: I, I agree with you, and it's um, it's a negotiating tactic, a threat on the on the. Part of the biggest clubs in European football, which is used on a regular basis. So, I think the, this um, this story dates back to when uh, UEFA were deciding the uh, allocation of places in this the Champions League for this season and changing um, the payments to the clubs. And, you know, the top clubs in European football feel that they are responsible for the majority of the broadcast revenue and they're always trying to get more of it to themselves. So what they did um, in this last round of negotiations was increase their access to the Champions League. So now Spain, Germany, England and Italy all have four guaranteed places in every Champions League competition going forward, whereas previously for many of those nations it was three and a half because they would have to... To play off for that fourth place, that's now gone, which um, which makes it much easier for Premier League, um, top Serie A teams, Bundesliga, etc., to plan for the next season. And the cost is for countries like Scotland, where Celtic now have to go through three rounds of, of uh, qualification. Four very, rounds, mate. four rounds. Then it's even yeah. worse. Yeah. Qualification very early in the season, the team not properly prepared with with the most important part of their um annual budget on the line in each of those matches Um, i think the the idea of a a european super league is is something which we we should all be seriously concerned about particularly in the way um it's proposed the idea that you would have um certain teams uh being guaranteed um entry um, and their status within that european super league regardless of what happens for 20 years like we were talking about the proposals for the club world championship last week, but far worse. It goes against the whole spirit of football, which is that a team should be able to, should have to earn its right to appear in the top stage. And it should be under threat of losing its right in every season. Um, and that is one of the reasons why football is interesting to watch because are because, because those, those dual penalties. Um, we don't want to turn it into an American system where, where you have a franchise which which effectively can know that we can have a bad year this year. We don't have to spend on 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 coaches and players. We don't have to worry about what happens because we're gonna we're gonna pick up a certain amount of revenue guaranteed, and uh, and we can have a go in a few seasons' time. I think it would fundamentally alter the way football is, and and would be damaging um, all the way down the system. So, if if there is ever to be a European Super League. You want it to be set up in a way that everyone has potential access to it. You don't want cartels. In principle, the idea of watching Barcelona play Manchester City um, twice a season or more guaranteed and having that level of of match um, regularly on the television sounds great. I I think, actually, it wouldn't be so great because um, what makes those matches special is partly because they're infrequent um, and partly because they're interspersed with matches where you've got more of a of a differential between the teams, um, and part of the you know the joy of watching Premier League, for example, is that to watch and see if there's going to be a shock result, to see the underdog team um, having a, a genuine opportunity uh, to beat the better teams in the division, which they which they do have, um, because access is open to everyone. Um, and the, the revenues are, are relatively fairly distributed compared to other leagues, which, which has allowed um, teams such as Brighton uh, coming up from the lower divisions to, to create a, a rational structure, a plan for the medium and long term, and make themselves better and better with the intention of, of going further up that division um, and you know, regularly causing um, difficulties and shocks. To, to the better teams in that division and that's you know I think that's a fundamental part of why football is the most popular sport in the world and these top teams if they're seriously thinking of removing that part uh, of football from the equation they should have a proper think about what what they're risking for themselves by doing so
2: I think as well Johnny we should note that um, at the bottom of this is is money that what basically is being thought about here is not competitive spirit it's not the good of football it's money it's about the fact that people will pay to see two super clubs play against each other twice a season or or whatever um, and that the world market for the television rights for the exposure for the sponsors um, the marketing opportunities etc etc are all com- you know multiplied tenfold if not more because you're putting effectively uh, two teams together on week in week out, who can tick all those boxes with regards to their global appeal. So it's it's not about football at all. It's actually about finance, and there is a, a, a you know a massive argument, a massive debate, which is all, already happening and will continue um, to be a, a source of much. Uh, frustration, anger and contention amongst football fans, football administrators, football clubs, etc., etc., with regards to where's the game, what's the game sold, and does it have a price? Because at this moment in time, it looks like there is no, you know, the, the, the price is to the highest bidder with regards to think, situations like this. And that means that you destroy the, or you certainly, um, you, you <laughs> diminish um the kid who goes out on the park on a Saturday morning playing seven aside or eleven aside if he's over fourteen and his dreams to become a footballer or his dreams for his club, it be it Brighton or Huddersfield or Accrington Stanley or anything else, because you're effectively eliminating the com- the the competition which allows them to get to grow and gain more status and and c- compete with these huge clubs who have always been there.
0: And is that is that still the case, though, Ian? That a Brighton or an African Stanley can actually come and challenge a City or a United? This brutal polarisation that has taken the place... There is,
2: Johnny, but but at least at the moment the Corinthian spirit and and the principle of that, at least, in theory still exists. Because you've got the FA Cup, where every registered FA club, uh, league or not, begins that challenge uh, You know, way before the first week in January when the... Um, the football league clubs get involved. You've got <clears throat> the as um we've seen in at least well on two occasions in the Premier League era where Blackburn Rovers and Leicester City have against most of the odds become champions of England. If you take away the competition, if you simply say everyone gets to see Man City versus Barcelona or Manchester United versus Real Madrid uh you know two, three times a season then, as I said it's not for the the good of the game it's for the good of the the, the finance and the, and the the money that it generates um you know i went as as all listeners know, I went to see Barcelona uh, Real Madrid uh, last weekend, and the cheapest ticket cheapest ticket was one hundred and seventy nine euros for that match for the for the general public and the most expensive was fourteen hundred <laughs> now that's not for the socios, obviously, who have season tickets. It's obviously, that's not the point. But if you want, as a football fan, to go watch that game... And I I was flabbergasted when, you know, that that was the case because even at Manchester United, you can buy a, you can currently buy a ticket for any Manchester United game, albeit... But even Category 8, you can probably buy a ticket for about £50. And so, at the moment, the Premier League, in terms of the fan base, and you're going to watch a live match, is... Very viable. And in fact, the the Premier League agreed, I think, two years ago, that away ticket prices would be limited to £30 for away fans, no matter where you go, whether it's category or not. But to go to see a football match with the cheapest ticket was €179, and you think, who's going to afford that? You know, you really, that is a big, big stretch, and that's the cheapest ticket they had. So, as I said, that aside, in terms of the the, uh, classical, if you're going to create a European Super League, then you can imagine the tickets will be even higher in terms of the basic price um, for football fans to actually go and experience that game. And the reason, uh, it's not the reason, but the fact of the matter is all the money to be made from broadcast revenue anyway because there'll be billions of pounds being paid for the rights to that. But like Duncan, I believe that after a certain amount of time, people will become tired of it. They'll simply get bored. And in fact, the 20 odd years I've covered the Champions League and I've been through Probably four different versions of it in covering it the current format is the most boring that it's been because you genuinely if you look historically at the fixtures in the group stages teams often meet each other almost on a, a an annual basis anyway and I'm not saying obviously it's Bayern Munich and Real Madrid or Barcelona and Man City but I'm just saying that the group that you're drawn in you some fans will say yeah, I did that last year. I went to Salzburg or I went to Basel or I you know, I, I did that game so I don't have to go again. I've done that, I've done that trip. And that's diminishing the competitive issue as well. Look, again, I think we should go back to simple format. Every European club who's champion of their um domestic competition over the course of the league season should go into a knockout competition and just let it ride and see where it goes and You know what? I think we're a much more interesting um, and much more competitive European Cup, as it used to be called. And you'd see upsets and you'd see drama that you just don't get currently because it's just too, it's far too stringent a format.
0: Well, two clubs that would be taking part in a European Super League and are facing off on Sunday at, uh, in Manchester. Manchester City against Manchester United, 4pm kickoff. Duncan, you've been on Twitter um, talking about your uh, one of your big bugbears, which is tactical fouling. You feel that uh, Guardiola has been um, been caught with his hand in the tiller on this one um, because he claims that he would never ask his team to do that. But if you watch the Manchester City documentary on Amazon, there is a clear indication that his assistant certainly asks them to do that. So who's, who's right on this?
1: Uh, I, I, I find it bizarre that, that Pep Guardiola can't just admit that, that he tells his uh, players that um, if they lose the ball... Uh, fundamental to his system which he does, which he does say is that he wants to get the ball back as quickly as possible but why he can't admit that he tells them if you don't get the ball back foul because um, the way we play we commit more bodies up the field than other teams we leave ourselves more exposed um, at the back because we're playing a high pressing line so the biggest danger to us is uh, fast counterattacks when the opposition get the ball. So I want those fast counterattacks stopped at source. And if you can't win the ball back, follow the opposition. Um, it's a great place in the field to foul the opposition because referee rarely will book you for it. And that's why we see guys like um, David Silva um, and Raheem Sterling regularly um, having two, three um, fouls against them in a match um, and very infrequently getting booked. Um, it's a legitimate tactic, uh, and it's for for me. Um, it's up to referees to be more canny and realise that the, the the professional fouls that they would book um, if they were to happen in the in the, the team's own half of the field. So if you tr- if you pull a player back while he's going at your goal, once he's over the halfway line, generally in the Premier League these days, you'll get a yellow card for it. The referees are pretty good at, at punishing that, but. This Manchester City are doing the equivalent thing. They're just doing it higher up the field and referees let it go. They let it ride. Now, why Guardiola can't just be honest and say, yes, it's a tactic I use when specifically asked about it, I don't understand. I mean, uh, you say it's a bugbear. I, I find it interesting as a tactical approach and an examination of, of what made Guardiola's team successful last season when they'd struggled in the first season. And to me, it's clear that he had a look at English football and realised um, while he'd been complaining about the, you know, the laxity of the refereeing and the fact that his players were getting kicked a lot and referees weren't doing much about it, he realised, well, I can exploit this um, and I can use fouls um, at the top end of the field to improve my defence and again if you if you listen to him in separate periods he talks about de- how defence is fundamental to his tactical approach he's quite happy to admit that and explain that you can only attack well if you defend well and the basis of it comes from defending so all the bits are there it's just when he's directly questioned he says um, no I don't do that and that despite, despite as you say in the Amazon uh, documentary uh, Mikel Arteta being caught on on camera telling his players to foul um, when the opposition get the ball before before a particular match. Despite Guardiola's assistant of many years at Bayern Munich and Barcelona, who's now um, the coach of uh, New York City, uh, Dominic Torrent, giving an interview at the start of the season where he explicitly said the first five seconds after you lose possession are fundamental to Pep's strategy he tells the players to get the ball back or make a foul, despite these things being there, um, despite the statistical evidence. And, you know, I, I wrote a piece last season for the Daily Record December last year where I looked at the rates with which every team in the Premier League foul when they don't have the ball, which is the key, because um, you you essentially only foul when you don't have the ball. So if you want to see if one team is 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 more likely to foul to stop the opponents. You've got to um, control for the time spent on the ball. And I looked at it, and Manchester City's rate was almost 30% higher than uh, the average for the Premier League. I also looked at all his previous teams, and every single one of them, um, Barcelona, Bayern Munich, the previous Man City, had always been well above the divisional average for fouling when the opponents had possession of the ball. They all have high rates. Quite often he had the highest rate in the division. So it's a clear pattern in the way he plays. And there are other statistics out there that other people have, have done, more fine-grained statistics, which show the same thing. Interestingly, they're not first, they're not the most um, not doing it at the highest rate in the division this season. Um, they're, they're fourth. They're still well above the, uh, the Premier League average. I think they're 12% above the Premier League average this season. But the ones who are doing it the most are Arsenal. Um, which, again, is probably quite telling in that Arsenal are playing a high line. Um, they're quite fragile defensively. Um, so, you know, Emery's obviously uh, instructing his players to to get the fouls in early when they lose possession to try and protect themselves. Um, I, I just find it bizarre that, um, that Guardiola has this ability essentially to lie through his teeth when presented with things um, in, in press conferences um, which uh, might not present him in, in the best light, um, I, I think it, I would have more respect for him if he was prepared to, to talk honestly about these things and just admit that you know, the, the, the fact that their football is so good to watch, um, that they're so good in the ball, the other side of it is that they, they uh, run the laws to the limit um, to allow themselves to play that way. That's just, that's just the way football is. Look, it's very
2: clever and it's also yeah.
1: clearly effective
2: in gaining yeah. results, and I'm amazed why he doesn't want to take credit for it, because he's changed the way that football is played uh, at Barcelona with Tiki Taka, and now he's changing the way that football is defended at Manchester City. Um, he's adapted to English football, and it's and it is legitimate. It's not out with the laws of the game. People might argue it's out with the spirit, but in actual fact, fouls occur in every match, where you know they're intentional or tactical or whatever. So I just I I I'd be Hold my hands up and saying, "You know what? I'm a genius. It's, I, I I have created this way of defending, which is very, you know has brought me a league title um, and is going to keep me succeeding in England." So for me, it's it's odd, and and it's the language he used as well. Never, 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 not in Barcelona, not in Munich, not in Manchester City. I never told my players to foul. It's almost like you know he's got a halo, and they just want the halo to slip. It's Saint Pep. It's like I am the 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 guardian, the purest, the 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 man who you know only plays football in the right right way. Well, he's not doing anything wrong. Quite clearly, he's not because you know his players are not getting yellow cards, and if it's tactical fouling or normal, or you call it fouling or just you know tactical play, it's just what it is. So it's it's just a bit weird. I, I think it's one of the complexities. Um, we talked before about the you know the potential darker side of Pep's character. I, I, I'm intrigued by it. I must admit, I'm intrigued both by the fact that he is happy to um, instruct and clearly um, it works, but then denies that he actually does instruct nor that it happens. I, I think that's very very odd. But I, I, you know, if I were in that press conference, which I wasn't, then I would have pursued him more on that um, in a way that didn't happen. Uh, And I have to say as well, kudos to Duncan Castles for the fact that he has both uh, shown this to be the case, proven to be the case. Gary Neville, of all people, has cottoned on through um, following Duncan on Twitter and through him talking about it on Sky, the question was finally asked and Pep denied it.
0: Um, In terms of the game itself, how do you think Jose Mourinho is going to set up to try and stop Manchester City? Because they are... At the moment, looking extremely powerful and potent going forward. Lots of tactical fouling, Johnny. Definitely, <laughs> <laughs> and he'll probably happily admit it as well. But
2: <laughs> oh, he would. The dark arts and all, of Josie.
1: Well, that's the thing. I mean, Ian says he's. I, I think. He, I think he's right about Pep. He should just. Uh take credit for it because i don't think he created it but i think he has if not perfected it he's taken it to um new heights and and as he says it's legitimate it's up to the referees to be aware of it and and penalize it um, but if the referees aren't going to do it it's it's a legitimate tactic uh josie Mourinho has used it most coaches use it it's been used for years and and you ask about whether josie Mourinho. i, I remember josie Mourinho commenting on um deco uh, playing for Porto uh, and talking about how, after the match how he 'd made a tact- uh, a brilliant tactical foul, so he he had no shame about um, saying uh, praising his players uh, for for implementing something he 'd asked them to do, um, and you know brilliant is the thing is you you fail when you have to fail to protect your team and and that helps you win games which is why uh, Pep Guardiola has his team doing it and why why his team are winning so many games or one of the reasons why his team are winning so many games it allows them to attack the way they do and that's the you know that's the key element for for him in terms of um, how united set up this weekend again fascinating because they've um sort of really interesting comments from Mourinho after um, the win at the weekend at Bournemouth, um, when he was asked about the the change in his team this season and why they were conceding so many goals, and he, he talked about something we, um, we've discussed many, many times on, on the transfer window, that last season he was setting his team up in a way to protect the weaknesses of his defence and, and playing in a conservative fashion because he felt... Uh, it would cost him goals if he if he played more openly in matches, and this season he he says he 's trying to be more balanced than trying to to use the attacking um, strengths of his team um, more, and the cost has been they're conceding a, you know a rate of well over a goal a game um, and a, a fascinating discussion from him, but what that brings into the Derby is a question of of how they set up for that because they have been playing more offensively they have been playing more open um he has been using more attacking players in his setup with you know with wala well, mata in there um, fred and for the last two games who's uh, better going forward than he is uh, defensively um, can he do that against manchester city i honestly i don't think if he goes open against manchester city they have any real chance of of winning the game i would expect him to to come up with one of his tailored plans not to say that he won't attack early. As I've said many times before, quite often when he has these um, plans for games, he tries, he instructs his team to to to, to press hard and try and score an early goal. Uh, because that, he feels that's the best situation in which to defend. If you've got that early goal, then the other team, and you know, with Man City it's particularly important, have to open up more and go for you, and then you can score further goals in the break. So it might be a kind of blended system where he's got something set up to try and stop Manchester City's strengths, try and be defensive, but um, get a goal early at set-piece, for example, or um, through pressing them um, when they're passing, passing the ball around at the back early on. But um, I think it's a very tough game for Manchester United, given the the fragility of the team at present and um, and the quality with which Manchester City are playing just now.
0: Okay, we can talk about this game in a little bit more detail here in the quickfire round, because what we're going to do is pick a combined 11 for Manchester City and Manchester United. We're going to start with you, Ian, the goalkeeper. Who do you select? I'm going to go for David De Gea in this instance, Johnny,
2: because I think he's... Still the best goalkeeper in the Premier League. Shot stopping, um, uh, his interventions, saving with his legs, making saves you don't expect him to make. I think he he remains, yeah, the best. So I, I admire Ederson, but I think De Gea still, still steals it.
0: Okay, well, we're going to play at a four 3 We're going to start with the left back. Duncan, who, who are you going to have in there?
1: Uh, I think it has to be Benjamin Mendy. Um, ah, your be- old mate. Benjamin, back from, back from injury and, uh, and showing his, showing his uh, quality again. I think he's uh, far ahead of, of any other of the um, options from the, the two squads and that's, that's shown in the amount of money that was, was spent to recruit him. Um, but, yeah, Mendy at left back for me.
0: Text just in from Mendy are saying, Duncan's showing the wisdom of a graduated doctor with that. So, we're quite happy with that. <laughs> uh, right back, Ian. Uh, I might surprise a few people with this one, but I think, I think Ashley Young
2: um, has been outstanding since he's been switched <laughs> to his natural right foot um, in the last few games. And he shows a athleticism, which allows him to get forward and, and be a danger on the counter attack, as well as uh, getting back. A man for his years, um, got a lot of energy. Um, and in all honesty, one of the few Manchester United players I, I'd probably put in this combined 11, but I do think that he, he deserves his place. Ahead of Kyle Walker? I don't think has been had such a great season this year. I really don't. I think Ashley Young's been, uh, I said, better defensively, better attacking. Kyle has got power, but I think Young has, has got more about him in terms of versatility.
0: Okay, stand up for what you believe, in. that's what I say. Uh, Centre back, Duncan?
1: I will go here for a player that obviously it's dependent on his fitness, but I think Vincent Kompany... Um, and, and particularly for a Manchester derby, because he has that understanding and uh, passion for Manchester City uh, through his long association at the club, um, and also a history of performing in the game. I think you'd remember he he he, was a, he scored uh, last season um, in the, the the game at Manchester City, which they eventually lost. But um, it's typical of him to come up with with a goal in a, in a match like that. I still think. When he's fit, um, and you know that's a big proviso because he's he's rarely fully fit these days. He's probably the the best of the central defender cohort at the two clubs with a combination of his of his physicality and his um, his intelligence and experience. It doesn't make a lot of mistakes when he's fit. I okay. agree
2: with that, Duncan, as well. And f- for his centre half partner, I think um, it's fairly obvious that the way that United are conceding goals and the manner in which they're conceding goals. We can't really, or I should say, realistically put um, any Manchester centre-halves in this team. So I'm going to go for John Stones, who I think has improved his concentration this season. I think that, yes, there's the possibility there's a mistake there, especially in a big game that's in him. But I've been impressed with him um, this season so far. I think he's improved. I think um, also that his defending has got better. Uh, there was never... a any doubt about his um, footballing ability or his ability to s- distribute the ball. But I think he's taken his defensive duties a lot more seriously and I'd pair him with company all day long. Uh,
0: midfield pivot, Duncan. Who are we going to play that's going to dictate the flow of the game from central midfield? I think it, it, you're
1: there. You're between the man, Matic and Fernandinho. Um, and I think I'll go for Fernandinho because he's in better form at the moment. Um, Matic hasn't been... Um, at the best, at his best, the last few weeks, and I think part of it is um, the pressure that's been on the team, and the and the pressure that's been on the you know the manager that he came to Man United for. Um, Fernandinho is a very consistent performer, extremely important to, to City, and that-, that that the way he. he- Steps in between the two centre backs when they're pushing players up the field. He's also got that little talent of being able to get away with multiple fouls in a game and you know, knocking a player over when they're in good position and smiling and picking him up and winking to the referee and um, seemingly avoiding uh, seemingly avoiding yellow cards where um, when most other players would get them. So I think he's the he's the man at, 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 for defensive midfield and between those two teams at present.
0: Okay, you someone slightly more attacking going forward from midfield. Well, as it's a 4-3-3,
2: Johnny, and we'll also have to count out Kevin De Bruyne, uh, who's injured, I would uh, take on the right side of um, the midfield three is David Silva. Um, He's absolutely um, excelling um, despite uh, his years, despite, obviously, the worries he had at the start of the season regarding his um, premature-born baby. Um, For me, he is one of the most influential players uh, in in England and, in, and certainly in the Premier League and possibly in Europe as well in terms of assists and goals. So um, I'd have to shoehorn Silva in the midfield three rather than the front three because I think we're going to have a bit of a, a barney about the front three because they'll be the most contested.
0: Duncan, it appears we have a left centre midfield spot available. Are you going to shoehorn Paul Pogba in his natural position?
1: Yeah, um, I, th- I think it would be It would be between Pogba and and David Silva, actually, for that left side of midfield. I'd have Bernardo Silva at right side of midfield, who I think has been exceptional this season. And he's now adapted to the Premier League and uh, showing a a range of talents that suggest he's going to be one of the top players in the division for a long time. And and kind of the natural heir um, to David Silva as he he moves to the end of his career. I'm quite happy to Um, allow you to do that, Duncan. If
0: you uh, want to move players uh, around, you can.
1: Pogba, since you're asking me about left midfield, uh, we've got to discuss Pogba. I think you put him in the team. In, in, the, in, the, in this team where we're choosing the best of 11, you could you could put him in because you've got the best players to make up for that occasional mistake, which costs his team. Um, and that's the only thing you'd really criticise Pogba for in terms of his actual performances on the field this season. I think he's done really well um, from attacking point of view. I think he's done well from... Point of view of imposing his personality on games, um, he's you know he he has responded to a difficult situation and delivered on the pitch, but the one issue is is those stupid mistakes that have you know cost points against Wolves and almost cost points against Everton the other week. But given that it's the best of eleven, you could afford to have Pogba in there and get and and then you know you also get the advantage of a, of his um, supreme uh, physical. Um, uh, Abilities, which are you know, the pace he has, his balance on the ball, the size of him, it, and combined with his, his ability to play the ball, is is pretty much unique. I think in in, in world football at present, there are not many players with that with that skill
2: set. For the record, Johnny, I, d- I did have Pogba on the left side of my three, um, and I switched Silva to the right on the basis I needed I wanted Pogba in my team. So, I think Duncan and I are pretty much um, in agreement there. With regards to Pogba.
0: Duncan, on the same wavelength as you for the quickfire round, this is a first. Okay. (laughs) Of course, I I would have said James Milner, as all our listeners know,
2: but I'm not, you know, he did play for Man City, but I'm not sure I'd be allowed to get him in this one.
0: And left midfield Ian or left winger? Left side. I'm
2: going to go for Anthony Martial. I love the way he's playing right now. He's cutting in very well. He's got pace, he's control on the ball is very good. I think he's become less selfish uh in terms of when there's an opportunity for a player to go in um ahead of him, but whether it be Rashford, Lukaku, um then he tends to put them in now whereas before he would always cut inside and just shoot. But his shooting has been very good. His goals uh, in the last few games have been very impressive. So in in terms of the left side of the front three, Martial would be my man
0: to
1: provide assists and a goal threat on the right, Duncan? Yeah, it's easy, Raheem Sterling. Um, uh, exceptional last season, exceptional this season. Um, I think definitely the best of all the wide players um, between the two clubs. Um, and, a, and a player who's, whose career is on a, on a great upward trajectory. Uh, um, very intelligent, scores goals, creates goals. Movement hard to, to track. Um, low centre of balance he's just he's just exceptional at what he does
0: and finally to top us off ian are you going to cause a stushy and leave out sergio aguero or are you just going to go with the flow
2: no it's going to be Sergio Aguero for me johnny Uh, he's also got a very impressive record actually in derby games against manchester united uh you know he scored his 150th goal um last weekend incredible uh because he's i think it's 217 games now for manchester City, 150 goals Wonderful, wonderful um, ratio of goals to games, and also someone who you would always, you know, think that when he gets the ball, whether it be uh, passing on the second phase or whether it be one on one, he's going to score. He's got the experience, he's got the guile, and yeah, I'm afraid Lukaku or, or anyone else at Manchester United pale into insignificance uh, in his particular shadow.
1: Okay, that's our team to I'm just going to say it's funny um, that if you look at the position that's most questionable at the moment, it's probably that one And that you could say Pep Guardiola isn't picking Aguero every game. He's switching between Aguero and Jesus. Um, Lukaku is so far out of form, he's been, he's been left out of the team and caused some consternation uh, at the weekend by declaring himself injured after he'd been uh, dropped the previous week. And Rashford, for all his um, um, advocates... In the english media um truly isn't ready to be a, a top center forward yet and keeps missing um opportun- opportunities you'd expect an elite center forward to put away easily so that yeah i think it's quite telling that that's probably the the most questionable position but i'd agree with ian that for this if you're picking the best of them then aguero's the one at the moment
0: Quick predictions, guys. Duncan, I know you never get this right, but uh, have a pop at it
2: anyway. You know, not
0: like (laughs) I I do recall the last
1: time we did this was the Chelsea Manchester United game, and I think only one of us got the um, got the result right. Indeed. Uh, Um, uh... I don't know where you put your bet on Johnny McFarlane, but I suspect the bookie was keeping all of those funds. Um, I will go
0: for two one Manchester City.
2: Four one Manchester City.
0: Ooh, I'm going to go for two-two. Ooh, I think Mourinho's going to get right in their faces. Very physical performance and grab a couple of goals from set pieces.
2: Well, Johnny McBookie will give you fourteen to one on that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I had a spare pound, indeed. <laughs> And with that, I'm going to slam this particular transfer window shut. Just a reminder, we are looking for a sponsor, so if you like the idea of partnering with one of the UK's best football podcasts and talking directly to our listeners about your brand, get in touch through our social media channels. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own transfer window official account at Transfer Podcast. If you want to follow us individually, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane and most importantly, our pundits are at Duncan Castles and at SJ. If you like the podcast, and we know that thousands of you do, please give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review, as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. We'll be back next Tuesday before 4pm. Until next time, thanks for listening.